Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Laura Nelson, Chief Executive Officer at the National Cryptologic Foundation. Prior to this role, Laura served for 37 years with over 15 years as a Defense Intelligence Senior Executive. Laura has held positions in the NSA and CIA and is the recipient of the National Intelligence Certificate of Distinction and a Presidential Rank Award Meritorious Executive for her work. Laura supported multiple initiatives, including the Star Treaty leading NSA's Discovery Enterprise and the creation of two integrated discovery centers. Laura, we are so happy that you're here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. All right. Are we ready to go? We are. All right. So working in the IC is somewhat of a family business for you. Uh, Can you talk a bit about how you found your way into the community? Sure. So my father was an NSA employee for a number of years, over 30 years. He was also a senior executive at NSA. Um, He started his career in the installations and and logistics organization there. He was a civil engineer. So he built a lot of the um, buildings and um, both domestic and overseas for NSA. And he spent his entire time in that part of the business. Um, As part of that, we spent three years in Germany in lovely Bavaria at uh, Bad Ibling Station. I was able to go to elementary school there. So that's probably where I had most of my early exposure to what is NSA, because we lived in an NSA community, essentially, with everybody who was either contractor or military or civilian, all living and playing and doing everything together. But still, I didn't really know what NSA did. I just knew that there were these funny golf balls out in the field. (laughs) That's what they look like, large golf balls. So there are these large golf balls. Who knows what they did? And my father wouldn't say anything. Of course Um, not. Of course not. Um, So as time went on, it became clear I was really good at math and science. And that seemed to be where I excelled. And I found myself, you know, maybe studying engineering as we went to uh, as as I was going to proceed to college. My father was a huge influence in that, along with a a, a physics teacher that I had who kept saying, you know, you really should consider becoming an engineer. And so I, I decided to pursue that and applied to Virginia Tech and was accepted and a very proud Hokie. And um, as part of that, though, I still didn't know what engineers did precisely. So I wanted to find a school that was a, had a cooperative education program. And for people who don't know what that means, that is you alternate uh, periods of work in school. So you go to school for a semester and then you come and work in a real live environment for a semester and then you go back to school. So you extend, uh, essentially extend your uh, degree from four to five years. And of course, um, you know, Virginia Tech offered that, but then I had to find an employer and I didn't have a car. So the way that worked is the best employment opportunity for me was to go to work at NSA as a cooperative education student because I had a ride with dad. And so that's what I did. And um, it was just a fantastic experience. 
it was nothing like what my father did. I was not at all working in the installations and logistics organization as he did. I was working in the real operations mission for most of these co-op tours because I could move around a bit and learn a lot about what NSA did. So that's really what started how I started my career there. That's really cool. And do they still have that opportunity? Oh, yeah, absolutely. NSA has, been, has, a, has had the cooperative education program for years, and it's still very, uh, very productive today. That's how they bring in a lot of their engineers and computer scientists that they hire. That's great. I, I just think that's important to mention for some of our listeners who are looking for a job like that and who are currently in college. Um, yes, and you make some money. You make some money, right? A pretty yeah. Decent, you know, side salary as well to help pay well, for expenses. Well, and what a way to get experience, right? Even before you graduate. So you, you're in this cooperative program and then um, you graduate. So did you go straight to NSA or did you have other applications that you, you know, that you put in for other places? What was next for you? Well, at the time it was the Reagan years and defense buildup was big and there were loads of opportunities for engineers, especially electrical engineers. And then you add to an electrical engineer with a little bit of uh, experience from my co-op program. So there was high demand. Getting a job was easy very easy. So I did apply to multiple companies, not all in the intelligence or defense community. I you know, applied with uh, General Motors. I applied with IBM, not, you know, not working defense at all. But in the end, when it was all done, after doing all the interviews, um, NSA was very competitive. And um, you know, it was in my home state. It was someplace where I wouldn't have to move. My friends and family were there. And um, most importantly, I could really choose my job there because I'd been a co-op student. I knew exactly what office I wanted to work in and with whom I wanted to work. I knew the people. So making that transition from college to you know, my first big job was very easy. And so I accepted the position at NSA. That's great. How did your impression of NSA change from what you learned from when your father worked there to after having a 37 year professional career, ultimately, you know, in and out of NSA, what were the big impression changes that you had? So, so of course, I, I finally learned what the real mission of NSA was, and that, <laughs> you know, there was this SIGINT mission is also an, what we call information assurance, or now you would call it cybersecurity mission, but you know, it's had many names over the time. I had no idea what that was or what, why it was important. So the first thing is I learned about what, what we were doing and why it was important and why it was so vital to the security of our nation. So that was just really exciting for me. Um, in the in the end, you know, when I looked at what my father did, he was doing very important work too. He was supporting the mission, so he was in more of a support role because um, he was building these, you know, building facilities both at home and abroad. And he had a lot of great travel, and he would bring us back great things. But now <laughs> I really got to see the mission up close and personal. Um, and so the other thing that I learned is uh, you get there and now you start meeting the real people and what they're like. And there are some interesting characters at NSA. Uh, you know, it's always, it's always, I don't know, they come from, they come from various backgrounds. They have different, various degrees, but, you know, a lot of them tend to be very, um, you know, to themselves, right? They aren't outgoing. I was very outgoing. So I was kind of like breaking through all that, trying to get to know the people. And, and what you learned is they're just real people, right? They're real people with families and they have, you know, they have lives outside of work and they all have, you know, interesting hobbies, just like everybody else. So that was the, the other thing that was important to know. And, but I will have to say um, the thing that was still the same, it was still a super secret place. 
and that we really didn't talk about what we did or where we worked outside of work. Um, it wasn't until a number of years later that somebody would ask me where I worked. I would say, I work for NSA. That was just not allowed. So, mm. you know, after a couple of years, I finally said, you know, they know if you say you work at Fort Meade for the Department of Defense, most of the world knows what that means. So I got to the point where I just say, I work for NSA. Oh, you do that. So, <laughs> but, oh. you know, it, took, it took some of the mystery around it um, out of the way. And you find you found that, you know, that um, there are people who do just regular jobs there that they do on the outside too. You know, you have to have HR people. You have to have people who mm -hmm. you know take care of the building. You have to have all of these things. So it was just really a microcosm of society all in one place. I was wondering if we could talk about FISINT a little bit. So could you explain to our listeners what FISINT is or the Foreign Instrumentation Signals Intelligence? How is it different from SIGINT and other types of technical intelligence? Sure. So that so so to get into it, I that's where I spent in the physics um, communities where I spent the first ten years of my career, and I really got into it through a couple of co-op tours that I took. I took two different tours in the in the co-op um, in the co-op program in that community. One that I loved, and the other that I didn't love. But um, not because the work wasn't interesting. It just wasn't for me in that particular. It was more of an analyst position as opposed to a true engineer. So. When I got out of college, I found myself in my first job working in the National Telemetry Processing Center. So basically it was a big center of these processing systems. And, um, and then I was the engineer for a couple of those systems. So I would you know, get to design and do things like that. But, but what this is, is it, it is SIGINT. So first and foremost, it is a subset of signals intelligence, right? We're still dealing with signals. Most people think of signals intelligence as communications between people, right? Person to person, whether it's a voice communication, an email, whatever. That's what mm -hmm. you think of as SIGINT. This is, well, we call it FIS for short. <laughs> this is, um, is really the collection of telemetry data that comes and emanates off of missiles and satellites and even cars today have telemetry just to be clear right all of these cars that are running around have telemetry associated with it so when these car when these when these missiles and satellites are in their testing phases they have they're instrumented with this telemetry that the developers of those systems then help them to understand how they are doing in their development so if they're launching a missile in a test phase they collect this information and they can say you know, is it got the range I think it should have? Is it doing, you know, the speed, the velocity that it should be having? You know, is it going to do what we expect it to do in a real life situation? So while this is really important for the people who create these missiles and create, you know, who develop them, you know, the same on the US side, right? When we're developing mm -hmm. our own missiles and satellites, we want the same information. It's also kind of important for those who are going to have to face them in the future, right? So as we know what the capabilities are of a foreign adversary's missile, then it helps us to better prepare and it helps us to get our, um, you know, the Department of Defense who's building weapons systems and countermeasures and all of that, get mm -hmm. them equipped to take care of that. So you know, think of this as just collecting from, from a machine or from some other kind of device as opposed to something that a human actually creates. That's great. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. So tell us, you said you did this for the first 10 years of your career. So tell yes. us about your experience in that role. What was that like for you? Yeah, so it was, um, so during that time, it was the 80s, right? And we were in the height of the Cold War, right? We were, you know, 
Ronald Reagan was, you know, I'm not going to take this, any of this from the Soviets. So, um, so it was a really, you know, kind of a stressful time, I guess, in some ways. Um, and so, you know, we were really trying to understand the Soviet Union's capabilities. But um, in my case, what I actually did, I was a hardware engineer. I would go in and I would design, I was doing design work. And then I'd actually go, it was like front, from end to end. I was, you know, hands on, I would design it. I would go in and I would build it. And then I would get it up and running in a larger system. So I would take, you know, I would, I was in the early days, not really responsible for um, the whole system. I was responsible for parts of the system, but then we had to integrate everything together. So for me, it was really great hands-on experience, learning how to use all the tools that were available, you know, as an engineer and just learning the basics of how I really doing design. You know, as time went on, I became more of a systems level engineer, looking at it from the larger picture and thinking about, you know, systems that, you know, how you do it from end to end and maybe working with other people to make that happen. But as part of that, as we built these systems, I also had the opportunity to put them in the field or put them in, you know, where they would, were getting installed. Some mm -hmm. were just right in NSA, right inside the building, but others were overseas at other locations. So it offered great opportunity for travel. And, um, you know, I got to travel to, you know, the UK, to Germany, to Japan, and spend some time overseas, which, you know, just kind of fun. You're a 20 something year old, and you're able yeah. to travel for work and um, really kind of see part of the world. So that to me was really, really exciting. But the other thing that was interesting about it was I was often the woman, <laughs> mm. the, wo the woman, right? I was there working with, um, it was mostly, it was men, right? There were a few women around, but for the most part, the technical crew was men. So for me, I had to really think about and learn how to, I call it finding my voice because, you know, I, I couldn't be, I had to really um, step forward. And if I want to have my opinion heard, I had to learn how to step in and say, I have something to say, and this is how I think we should do it. So as part of that, it was also also a growth opportunity for me to to move along and find my my place in this male dominated society and uh, and and do that. I wonder if you could share with us some applications of your work. Did you get to work on any cool projects that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Sure. Um, so I know I was well aware that the work we were doing helped our DoD partners um, understand the capabilities of our adversaries. So it was really important for the what they call the acquisition community, the big the big um, DoD acquisition of weapon systems and things or countermeasures. That I knew that we were we had a um, that we were having an impact there, and they really relied on the information that we provided. I wasn't the analyst providing it, but I was doing mm -hmm. all the work ahead of that to make that happen. But the most cool project I worked on was probably related to the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty between the United States and the then Soviet Union that later became Russia during the whole, you know, it was many years in the making. Mm -hmm. um, but part of, the, part of that treaty included a verification process um, to ensure that both parties, the U.S. and our counterparts, were complying with the treaty. And there were multiple ways of making sure that we complied. But one of them was to have an exchange of telemetry data between the U.S. and what was now Russia at this point. Um, and it was in the form of a data, you know, exchanging tapes in this case. Back in the day, it would have been tapes. 
Now it would <laughs> have been amazing. Bulk, bulk, back in the, yeah, it was tapes and now we'd probably be some bulk file transfer of some sort. But anyway, or other way, putting it in the cloud and making it accessible. But back in those days, it was tapes. And so this meant that we had to actually, you know, accept equipment from them. They had to accept equipment from us to actually allow this verification to take place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you are, suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to work with people I wouldn't have expected to ever be working with. And you know what, in the end, you find out that people are just people when it's mm -hmm. all said and done. But um, it was just a really fascinating, fascinating project to be involved in. That sounds like it. Why did you ultimately decide to make the leap from a technical job to leading technical teams? And, and I've heard you say that you enjoyed that. So, you know, tell me about that. So I was a good engineer. I was not a great engineer. And, um, and I found that my strengths were more in uh, pulling people together to accomplish a task, more so than actually doing the engineering myself. And so very early in my career, I would say within the first five years, I was asked to become a team chief uh, for a small team of high-powered high engineers who had come to us directly from industry. And the first thought was, you want me to lead this team? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you really want me to do that? And they were so smart and so savvy, so technically savvy. And I figured out, though, that they really need they needed help in breaking down barriers, right? To do their job, they needed somebody who would be there to fight for them. And that, that was my job. I was there to enable their success. And I really enjoyed doing that. Sometimes as painful as it would be, I really found that I enjoyed, enjoyed doing that. Um, this was during the early years of the, the first Gulf War, right? So we were working, my team was working on a really important project uh, to support that. And I just got a lot of, I felt a lot of, got a lot of pleasure out of seeing their success, which to me was my success, right? Because if I make them successful, then I'm successful. Um, so the other part is though, I had to really prove myself to them. It became a, a trust thing. Can they, did they, did they trust me? Did they have confidence in me? I mean, they were quick, to, this group was a little quick to say, well, you know, I'm not sure you're up to the task. And then I proved myself to them. And, you know, to be mm -hmm. honest, I became lifelong friends with, with many of them over the years. Um, I learned a tremendous amount from them, but I think they also learned a little bit from me. And I just found that I got a lot of, um, I, I got a, a lot of joy out of it. And I thought, you know, this is something I think I could do. <laughs> so that's awesome. So in your opinion, do you think it's difficult to move back and forth between technical and leadership roles? And what advice would you give to our listeners who are trying to move into a leadership opportunity? So I think my answer would be, it depends. It depends. Um, I did for a while, I straddled both. I was a mm -hmm. leader of a small group and then leading even up into a little bit of the branch level and I had a larger team. I could do some technical work as well as lead the team. But, but in the, you know, as I was looking forward, I was like, you know, the, the, the leadership job kept taking on more and more. And I found that I really had to give up the technical work to really be effective as a leader. I had, I had to let it go. And that was, that was okay. I mean, for me, that was fine. I didn't really miss it. I, mm -hmm. I didn't miss doing the technical work. Um, and I, I moved on and never looked back. But for some people, you know, they really want to, they say, well, I want to do this for a while. And then I want to go back. So it depends. Some people, they're, they're, they're technical hobbyists. So they're at home and in their evenings, they're coding, right? They're writing code for something. They're writing game, they're doing gaming things. They're doing all kinds of things. So as a technical hobbyist, they can keep their skills 
really sharp, right? Right. And so if they want to jump back from leadership into a technical role, they can do that. Um, for me, I had two kids at home. I had no interest in doing any of that. I had no time. You know, my goal is <laughs> right. to get dinner on the table, get the kids to bed, <laughs> take a breather, and then go to bed myself. So, you know, I just didn't have time to do it. But, you know, for others, others, they might, that's something that might fit into their lifestyle. But I, I think it is hard to keep your skills sharp unless you have something else that allows you to do that. Um, for my part, though, I did always lead. Every organization I led was technical. And so I did stay technically sharp from at least understanding the technology and all of that throughout, even to the very last job I had. Um, I had to stay abreast of technology and understand right. the changes that were underway. So while I wasn't a hands-on technical person, I could make, you know, I had a little bit of a sharp edge that I could yeah. use. <laughs> so what do you think makes a good leader? And can you give us some examples of how to apply those skills? Sure. I think, you know, I have three things that I think about. The first one is communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, and that means and communicate, you've got to stay consistent in message. Um, explain to your people why you made a decision. Make sure that the organization understands your long and short term goals because you got to get them behind you. Right. And if you keep wavering on what you're going to do, you're going to lose your team. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think that's really important. The other is I say, listen, 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 and make sure that you listen and gain perspective from multiple people, not just the people who are like you that you usually you know, align yourself with. Get somebody who's, always, who's somewhat contrary and might tell you something you don't like or don't want to hear. But listen, it doesn't mean right. you have to take that information and you're going to have to do exactly what that person says. You can have a very good reason for saying, I hear you but that's not the way I'm going to go. But you really have to at least get different perspectives in and it'll make you a, you know, it'll, it'll make you stronger in the end. And the, fi the final one, and I'm, you know, I'll have a story with it, but the final is about um, leading with integrity. And when I say that, it means being responsible and accountable. And, you know, my own story on that was um, I was a senior and I was in charge of an organization that was high risk, high profile, high risk, um, things could go bad. And, you know, you always got glory. You never got glory when things went well. And you would really hear it when things didn't go well. Well, sure enough, things went badly one day, mm. not through any fault of, you know, one individual. There were, you know, maybe one individual pulled the trigger, but there were good reasons for why it happened that way. Right. And there was a whole systemic problem underneath that was not well understood that led to, um, uh, a mistake that caused both our IC partners to be very upset with us and our organization and our foreign partners to be really unhappy with us. And so, boy, it was, a, it was, a, it was awful. <laughs> I could just say it was awful. And, um, and that's really hard to take when you're the leader of the organization. There's going to be an inspector general investigation into it. And then I got advice from my mentor. And he said to me, he says, you know, whatever you do, um, you know, be accountable, take responsibility, because that's what's going to make you survive in the end. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take that to heart. And, um, and when it came time, and they did the questioning and asked, I said, you know, this is my responsibility. This is my organization. Yeah, things went bad down below. I didn't, you know, push this button. But ultimately, it's me. It's mm -hmm. me who has to take responsibility for this and me who has to fix it. And then I also went and I apologized to those people who I'd impacted, um, like the analysts within NSA. I caused them, it caused all kinds of terror for them as well. Just a lot of 
cleanup that had to take place. And I, you know, I went to them and said, I really am sorry. I mean, this is something, there were systemic issues, didn't understand it, we've got to fix it, and I need your help. I need your help to make that happen. And, you know, I think in doing that, I learned a lot of lessons. Um, I learned a lot of lessons about myself and, and um, I, I gained respect from people by being that upfront. But I also learned more some lessons about my team because not all the team members, when questioned, you know, there were some who wanted to blame others. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. You can't, you know, down below, you know, you can't just say, well, that's that person's fault. You gotta say, you know, buck stops here, was in my organization. Yep. I have to take responsibility. So, so I think for me, you know, that was, you know, really a moment of, you know, how am I going to handle this and how can I, how can I learn my lessons in leadership? And I've used that for many years after that. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I think that is a great example of leading with integrity. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your experiences with mentorship through your career, um, especially being at NSA and, you know, like you said, you were often the only woman. And so um, whether that be, you know, the male mentors or female mentors, um, just, you know, talk, talk to me about mentorship. Sure. So um, about the time, it was about in the mid nineties and I was working for a, 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 my, my boss at the time, he'd been kind of shepherding me my career for a couple of years. And he said, you know, Laura, it's fine. I can help you and we can help find the right positions for you, but you really need somebody else to serve as an outside mentor for you, somebody you can bounce ideas off, somebody you can talk to, who's not in your direct chain of command. I said, oh, great, okay. And, um, and you know, at this point in time at, at NSA, there were scarce few women in um, senior leadership positions. And those who were, were largely either single or married, but very little married with children and balancing all of this live, you know, balancing work and all of that. And so I said, well, here's what I want. I have my criteria. I want a woman as a mentor, senior woman, and I want somebody who's married and has children and has managed to balance all. And he just looked at me and said, are you crazy? This doesn't exist. And I said, well, we can find that person. And he went out, he went about doing that and he did come back with somebody he thought was gonna meet my criteria. And, and she would, she was fine. She was great, but she retired six months afterwards. So basically, yeah, I remember he said to me, he says, well, we failed at this. And I said, yeah, we failed. <laughs> and he said, but now I think you, ha- you understand. And now you have to be that woman. As you, as you move up in the ranks, you have to be that woman there for all the others who, who want to do the same, who are looking for that person. He says, you have a great family life, you know, work-life balance. You seem to have figured it out. So why don't you help others along the way? It's like, okay, I'm going to do that. And, and I did, I served in that, I served that for many, many, most of the people who were my mentees were women and usually younger women who had families and were trying to figure out how to do this. Um, of course, then there's me who needed a mentor, right? So I still didn't have one, and, um, but I did stumble upon one. And uh, the way it worked was um, I was, uh, it was in 2001. And at that point in time, the, uh, there was an event in early 2001 where an EP3 Navy surveillance plane went down on Hainan Island in China. The crew was held and detained by the Chinese. And of course, they got the plane with all of the SIGINT gear on the plane. And um, I was asked to be on the assessment team to figure out, you know, what kind, what was at risk, what did, what, did, what had been taken, and mm-hmm. to understand what that meant. And as part of that team, it was a joint NSA, a joint civilian and military team, I'd say, mostly NSA from the civilian side, but there were others. And, um, and so I was asked to, to do that. And the leader of that team was a, a man named Ron Moultrie. And 
so we worked well together. We had just a, it was fun. It was like 10 people. It was, it was like doing real work. I wasn't leaving anything. I was just doing work. It was kind of fun. It was a nice break and, and learned a lot and got to interview the crew and do all kinds of fun things. Um, when that was over, I had to go back to what, uh, the job that I had and I was not happy in the job I was in. So <laughs> I was going back to something that I didn't like. And just because there were leadership challenges in there too. So I just wasn't happy about going back. Anyway, he uh, called me into his office one day to seemingly we were going to work on an award for one of our team members. But then he spent the hour, the next hour, convincing me to apply for a job that was an NSA assignment at the CIA. And I said, you know, what do you, are you crazy? I have two kids in elementary school and you want me to commute to the CIA? Are you nuts? <laughs> and, and he said, no, this is a great thing for you. And it turns out he was going to go down there at the time as an NSA, as an NSA civilian in a position that I didn't, that was a new position. And, and I would be assigned, he would be one of my three bosses because I ended up with three, three bosses when I was there. But, um, and I said, okay, he finally, you know, I guess he wore me down. And I said, sure, I'll apply. Well, of course, I got the job. <laughs> so, you know, there we go. So um, I ended up working for him in that particular job. And, you know, I have to thank him because because of him urging me on, it was probably one of the best experiences of my entire career. I loved that job. I loved working with the people. I loved working a joint NSA CIA mission and got to work for another man who was just a legend in the in the CIA. Just fantastic experience. And I was always, you know, thankful. But after that, you know, Ron continued to be my mentor for years and um, still to this day is my mentor. He still calls me every once in a while. Hey, I got a little opportunity for you, Laura. And so, um, you know, out of that came a friendship and somebody I knew I could call on when things got bad. So anyway, that was my own story. I love that. And I think a true mentor kind of does stay with you for life. I think of, about my personal mentors, um, you know, you have your supporters, you have your mentors, you have your coaches, and I feel like your mentors really, you know, they stay with you throughout your career. So I love that. Thanks for sharing. So yeah. you were the first woman to serve as a senior leader in the cryptanalysis organization at NSA. Um, coming in as the deputy chief, can you share the importance of cryptanalysis with our listeners as well as what it's like to be the first in that area? Sure. So I was asked to come in and be the deputy chief of what was then called the Cryptanalysis and Exploitation Services Organization. Of course, it's changed names because of a reorg or whatever or two. But um, anyway, this is an organization that many consider to be one of NSA's crown jewels. Right. This is the organization that was the code breaking organization for NSA. Um, and most importantly, I came in and I wasn't a mathematician. So first and foremost, what am I doing there? I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> I have an engineering background. So, of course, they're all looking at me with, what? What is she doing here? <laughs> well, I mean, the wisdom in it was that the person who was the chief, who was a hardcore mathematician, realized that the success of his organization was not just about the code, you know, code breaking, but the engineering and the signals analysis that was also part of his organization that had to be, you know, had to be dealt with as well. And that was a mm -hmm. large part of their mission. So they brought me in and, you know, soon I found myself shepherding that part of it. And I just loved it, right? It was right up my alley. It was the, it was the kind of things that I, that I liked. And what I really especially appreciated was some of the people who had been hardcore, hardcore on the, well, you're not a crippy um, side, <laughs> eventually, came around to uh to to like me <laughs> and, and appreciate my input so and you know what's funny at the time when I went at that job I didn't even think about the fact that I was the first woman it just didn't even occur to me and you know, it was one of the one of the women in the office said 
you know how happy we are to see you here? And I said, oh, okay, why are you happy to see me here? She says, how many have gone before you? I said, uh, let me think. She goes, there's none, there's none. She said, you're the first, you're the first to get to this level. And she said, and you're just, so for so many women in the organization, you are really, you know, seeing our hope, right? You're, you're, you're the person who can, you know, we can all see ourselves in you. And it was kind of funny because um, mathematics, if you think about the math community at NSA, uh, while the engineering community is heavily male or male dominated, right? In the math and cryptanalysis world, there's a lot of women. So they, you know, they tend to, they tend to go in that direction, you know, in college and um, NSA recruits a lot of women. So it did have a fair number of women in the organization. So it really was important for them to see somebody at that level, um, you know, eventually, and somebody, I never made it to the chief level. I moved on before I could have ever done that. But then eventually a woman did come in and, and become the chief of that. So, yay. Oh, how awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit to your current role. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you became the CEO of the National Cryptologic Foundation and what the mission and goals of the foundation are. Sure. So, you know, when I retired, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went back to work part-time as an annuitant at NSA in a SAR capacity. It was fine. I mean, it was it was fun. I was doing academic outreach. But um, I happened to go to the Messiah concert at the Naval Academy. And, um, in, you know, that's something that happens every year. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was walking out, I ran into Chris Inglis, who's the former deputy director of NSA and play soon our new national cyber director. But anyway, I happened to see him and went up and spoke to him. He says, hey, it's so good to see you. How's retirement? And I said, oh, it's good. He asked what I was doing. I said, oh, what else? I said, that's good. And he said, (laughs) okay. And then uh, three days later, a little email pops into my, you know, my queue from him saying, hey, we have this, you know, the National Cryptologic, and then it was called the Museum, National Cryptologic Museum Foundation, we're looking for somebody to serve as our first CEO and become president and lead our charge to build a cyber center for education and innovation. Are you interested or do you know anybody who would be? And I thought, wow, that sounds kind of interesting. That sounds maybe challenging. I don't even know what it is. And I gotta be honest, and the, the foundation was so little known about the foundation at the mm-hmm. time. I hadn't even heard of the foundation. So I had to go look it up and learn more about them. So then shortly after that, I found myself in a meeting with the chairman of the board, Dick Schaefer, and, um, and he's telling me about the job, telling me about the challenges. And um, he said, do some homework before you say yes, because it's not maybe as simple as you think. So I did my homework. I thought, well, I can do this. I can, I can handle this. And, um, and so I accepted the position to do that. I mean, I, I honestly didn't know what I was getting into at all. <laughs> I did do homework, but apparently not enough. Anyway, the big, uh, <laughs> the big thing that they were doing is, um, is to lead the charge to build the Cyber Center for Education and Innovation. And that would be the home, new home of the National Cryptologic Museum. So the old museum is in a very old hotel, motel, and needs to be torn down. And they were building this new beautiful facility right behind the current one. And that, um, and then that would eventually move in there and they tear the other building down. Um, so for me, I was like, okay, this is a challenge. First of all, it requires somebody who knows about construction. I get a zero in that. Um, <laughs> you gotta know a lot about fundraising. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so all the things I didn't know. Um, but anyway, sure, let's go for it. And um, 
And then the other thing is, you know, just really the uh, what the mission of the foundation is, and it was it's educate, stimulate, commemorate. And this is really where my heart is on this. And you know, building the building is great, and it'd be wonderful to have all this in a new place. But really, it's about the mission and the in the you know what the programs are. So you know, for us, educate, and it's about um, educating the public about the cryptologic mission. You know, never you know people don't know about NSA or what we do. Um, our focus is on K through 12 students and it's to grow interest in serving in cybersecurity roles, STEM or other cryptologic um, mission related fields, analysis, whatever it might be. And to really build that pipeline of students for an interest in that. And it doesn't just have to be working at NSA, it could be anywhere in that contractor community or anywhere else in private America who needs people understanding cyber. And so that to me is just so, so important. Um, the stimulate piece is about, you know, engaging the public and having those discussions, those difficult discussions on cyber, cyber privacy, um, technology, and really, you know, being a place to convene those this discussions with the, with the public. And then finally commemorate, and this is where we honor and celebrate those who have served in silence in our mission over, over many years. You know, there's you know, over 275 people who've died in the line of duty in this business, uh, mostly military, and it just, people don't know about that. So how do we commemorate them and then celebrate the, the lives of those who have you know, gone on and done this mission for many years? So to me, that really, really sang to my heart, right? It's, it's, it's a, you know, how, how could I, how could you not accept something where you're really giving back to this community right. that you served as an employee for all these years? So, you know, we're continuing on. We're continuing the campaign to build that, the Cyber Center for Education and Innovation, still doing our fundraising for that. But right now we're really taking these education programs and building those out. And, you know, we just found out today we got a 150K grant. And so- Wonderful, um, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, you know, we're just finding out different things uh, as we go along here, we're getting more money that comes in. It's just a really, really exciting time. Well, it sounds like a great mission and you're the perfect person to lead this, uh, to lead the operation. So that's great. Yeah, yeah I got to say, I, you know, I never saw myself. I always said, oh, I'm going to roll. I'm gonna, I'd like to run a nonprofit when I retire. I had no idea what I was talking about. But um, <laughs> I realized that I've been blessed with this opportunity and it's an honor to lead the organization and to further the cryptologic mission in ways that I could have never imagined. Oh, that's great. Well, we have come to the end. And as you know, um, we end each episode with the same question. And so in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So first of all, this was a difficult task. I really had to think about this. It was <laughs> difficult. And it was. All right. So I've given it a lot of thought. I think my name is Crypto Raven. Oh, I love it. That's perfect. Crypto so, Raven. Yeah. So crypto, obviously, I've now spent 40 years supporting the cryptologic mission. And so it is part of my life. So, you know, crypto is short for me for cryptologic. Um, and so that to me is just it's a part of my life now. I mean, you know, 40 years is yeah. a long time. Now, Raven. Raven is, um, you know, they're birds uh, who are great intelligence and problem solving skills. They work as a team. And I thought, you know, a raven is kind of a regal bird, right? And, um, but the other thing about it, it's a nod to my hometown. I'm from Baltimore. Oh. And, um, and I'm also a huge NFL fan. And my team is the Baltimore Ravens. So it all kind of ties things together. So that's why I thought, you know, the raven fits both, you know, my work life and my personal life. 
I love it. And we are going to tag the Baltimore Ravens on this episode so they can listen. <laughs> That'd be great. That's awesome. Oh, you know what, Laura, this was such a joy, um, this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your service to our country. I hope you had fun and uh, I hope to see you again real soon. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It is my honor to be asked to share my story and encourage women to continue to advance in our intelligence community. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.